This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. One thing that I always had was the ability to get out. I didn't go a day without a plan in place to up and vanish if I needed to. Because I always knew that things could go wrong. Which is to say, I always knew that things would go wrong. And when they did go wrong, I would need to evaporate. Not just move to a different town, but actually vanish. The only way for me to get out was to completely let go of my old identity. Disappear, leave no tracks, and then covertly arrive as a different person in a different place, undetected by those who were looking for me. Because if they found me, well, it should go without saying that I wouldn't be disposed of in a dignified manner. I unscrewed the plastic backing of my bulky old TV. From the guts of the television, I retrieved the cash that I had stashed there over time. It was $170,000. Not enough to retire on, but a sufficient amount to fund the starting of my new life. I put the money in a rucksack, and then I opened my dresser drawer. Inside, there were two passports, for two different, although very similar-looking people. I took one of the passports and placed it in the rucksack, leaving the other one behind. There were no other photographs of me, no personal items anywhere in the apartment. The only papers that contained a sample of my handwriting had been burned in a trash can two hours before. My laptop and phone, both wiped clean, would be left on the kitchen table. My wallet as well. Not much of anything would be found in the seedy Detroit apartment. It would be full of my fingerprints, but no real evidence of anything in particular. I wasn't sure why I had been dispatched to Detroit, but I wasn't exactly sad to see it go, either. It was a city full of death and dying things, and I felt like I had contributed to that in a way that I didn't want to be reminded of. I added a few days' worth of food and a half-gallon jug of water to the rucksack. I also packed pepper spray, a lighter, a watch, a two-way radio, a blanket, a change of clothes, a roll of toilet paper, 
a flashlight, and a toothbrush. I almost left the toothbrush behind. It seemed like an absurd time to be concerned with dental hygiene. But I packed it anyway, reminding myself that maintaining normal habits was key to not getting caught. Flying under the radar is all about doing normal people things. If you want to keep people from getting suspicious, you brush your teeth and wipe your ass just like everybody else. When I left the apartment, I had nothing but the fully packed rucksack and the clothes I was wearing. Even my keys were left behind, dangling from the lock on my front door. It was a bitch of a walk to the rail yard. There was a cold rain falling, but walking was my only option. If I took a bus or a taxi, I ran the risk of the driver remembering my face and revealing where I'd been dropped off. No measure of security could be spared on my escape. The jacket I was wearing was supposedly waterproof, but by the time I got to the rail yard, the rain had soaked clean through. I set my rucksack down and crouched behind a power box. While I waited for a train that was heading out in my direction, I swapped out my soaking wet socks for the dry ones in my bag. Then I pulled out the two-way radio and turned it on. Every railroad conductor in the United States uses one of the 96 frequencies in the bands between 160 and 162 megahertz. By scanning the channels, I caught wind of a train that was just getting ready to pull out of the yard. I didn't know its specific destination, but that didn't matter. It just needed to get me west of Chicago. And, as it seemed, that was where it was going. So I silenced my radio, slung my pack over my shoulders, and began to walk between the rows of shipping containers to where my train was, on the other side of the rail yard. When I found it, it wasn't hard to miss. It was just beginning to inch forward. Rail yard workers had finished their final checks and were now retreating to the shelter of the dispatch office. I walked low through the shadows and the rain, watching the cars jerk and creak gradually into motion. The train's myriad cars stretched back as far as my eyes could see. I didn't know what kind of cargo it was carrying, but it was comprised of a mix of boxcars and tankers. As one of the boxcars came into view, I noticed that its side door was ever so slightly ajar. The train car was a dark, rusty color, though any features beyond its color were lost to the rain and the darkness. I didn't know what was inside of the train car, but it seemed like my only reasonable choice. It was certainly the only car I could see that had an open door. As the train threatened to gain momentum, I jogged up alongside it and tossed my pack inside. I took two more jumping steps and then I tossed myself through the opening as well. When I got to my feet, I turned and leaned against the opening. I watched Detroit disappear into the dark, cloudy horizon. The city lights faded, and so too did my chance to return unnoticed. There could be no undoing what I had just done. I had broken protocol. There could be only two outcomes now. The absolute freedom of a new, untainted life, or the merciless devastation of being apprehended. But there was no part of me that wished to take my choice back. My plan was always to survive at all costs. And that meant being ready to leave everyone else behind. 
including my old self. I knew that everyone else was going down. I even suspected that they knew it too. Everything was going to come out. The writing was on the wall. The only question was, was I going to get out or go down with them? So I got out. And now I was on a train heading west. Nobody knew where I was or, more importantly, where I was going. There were no trackable devices on me. And in my rucksack was a passport that would introduce me to the world as a completely different person. A person that nobody's ever heard of. That nobody's looking for. It was hard not to feel intoxicated by that moment. But it was no means for celebration. I did a sweep of the train car just to see what I was in there with. There were three sandbags near the door, set against the wall. And in the front left corner was a pile of ratty old tarps and wet shipping blankets. I situated myself in the rear of the car, rolling out my blanket and propping myself up with my rucksack. I would have guessed that I was too jittery for sleep, but I would have guessed wrong. Soon after I laid down, I began to doze off. My escape had taken me through what felt like hell, and I was exhausted from all the tension that led up to my finally breaking free. I woke up in the darkened train car some time later. I checked my watch and saw that three hours had passed. Soon I would be in Chicago, where I would transfer to a Union Pacific line that would take me through Iowa, Nebraska, and Wyoming before I finally got off in the Pacific Northwest. And it wasn't even there that my journey would end. There would be more traveling, more evasive maneuvers, before I got to my final destination, which, if you must know, was a desolate region of Montenegro. But I wasn't thinking that far ahead quite yet. In that moment, I was just thinking about what was in front of me. Because... Something in front of me looked odd. I was still wiping the sleep out of my eyes, but my vision was fixed on the pile of tarps and shipping blankets in the front corner of the train car. Or, at least, what I had thought was a pile of tarps and shipping blankets. Because now the pile had taken on a different shape, a different dimension. It looked like a person now slumped low in the darkened corner of the train car. I didn't understand how someone could be in the car with me. I had checked it thoroughly before falling asleep. Had the train stopped while I was sleeping? It didn't seem probable. The jerking, grinding motion of acceleration would have woken me. But I didn't know where else this person could have come from. If, indeed, it was a person. It was too dark in the car to tell for sure. So I tried getting their attention. Hey, I shouted. Is someone there? A nervous moment passed, and then it moved. The figure appeared to lift its head. I couldn't make out much in the way of details, but they appeared to have long braids descending from their scalp. How did you get in here? I asked sternly. I'm always somewhere around these parts, came a low, grumbly voice. Okay, I said, lifting the heavy steel flashlight out of my bag and getting to my feet. 
As I began to approach, I said, I'm going to ask you that again. And this time, you're going to tell me who you are and how you got here. Or this flashlight I'm holding is going to come crashing down through your skull. When I got a few paces away, I turned the flashlight on and lit the figure up. What I saw was not someone sent to foil my escape. Not even an undercover agent come to take me in. But a simple vagrant. A vagabond who probably spent the better half of his life riding trains like these. The shape of his face was contoured by scars, and what few teeth he had left were cracked and yellow. His long hair was fashioned into messy braids, and he held a single dirty hand up to block the light bearing down on his face. You want to smoke? he asked. I turned off the flashlight partially because I felt bad for approaching him with such haste, but also because shining a flashlight when you're riding a freight train illegally is a great way to get caught. I took the smoke he handed me and returned to my blanket in the back of the train car. After I sat down and lit up, I hollered, Thanks. I looked out the side door at the night sky. It was almost unnerving how dark and featureless the outside world was. How far are we from Chicago? I asked. Should be any minute now, the vagrant said. But it don't matter. We all go into the same place. I sat with the words for a moment, trying to decide if they were the ramblings of a lunatic or if this man was trying to tell me something. What do you mean by that? I asked. Oh, nothing, he said. Just keep running, keep running till the sun rises. The sun will rise, the sun will rise, just not here. I felt my grip tighten around the straps of my rucksack. I didn't know what this man was talking about, but his words sounded too cryptic to be nonsense. Suddenly, the Chicago skyline came roaring into view. I rolled up my blanket and gathered my things, still puffing mindlessly on the cigarette. As we neared the rail yard, the train's screechy brakes began to slow it to a halt. I stood near the door, preparing to hop down from the train. I thought about thanking the crazy old man again for the cigarette, but opted instead to say nothing. He probably won't even notice when I'm gone, I thought. The train came to a near crawl, and my feet hit the gravel. I crouched low as I walked amongst the shadows of the rail yard. I listened to the chatter on my two-way radio, trying to get the drop on a train that was headed for the Pacific Northwest. When I found one, it was all the way on the other side of the yard, and from the sounds of it, it was already on its way out. I began to sprint through the narrow lines of train cars, finally catching sight of the new train a few hundred yards to my right. I kept my head down and tried to run quietly. The new train was picking up speed, and I didn't have time to be picky about what car to go for. I ran up alongside the closest boxcar to me and hopped aboard behind the rear axle. The train jerked forward just as I grabbed hold, sending my free hand swinging through the air. My wrist collided with the rear corner of the train car, shattering the face of my watch. Fuck, I said. I held on as the train continued to pick up speed. I peered along the side of the boxcar, but I couldn't see any sort of door or opening. So I crossed along the metal shelf at the rear of the car and looked down the other side. 
It looked like the right side of the car had a door on it, but in the darkness I couldn't tell if it was open. I began to climb along the slatted side of the train car, moving up towards the door. I was praying that I would be able to get inside. I couldn't imagine clinging to the side of that thing all the way to Portland. To my surprise, the door was not only unlocked when I got to it, but open. I swung first one foot and then the other inside. When I stood inside the train car and looked around, I felt suddenly queasy. This is impossible, I thought. I was back in the same train car that I had just left. It had the same three sandbags set near the door, the same pile of tarps and blankets in the front corner, upon which sat the same long-haired vagrant. What is this? I asked the man. How am I back here? But a larger part of me didn't even want answers to those questions. I receded into myself, not wanting to know how what had just happened was possible. My eyes returned to the opening, the door still slightly ajar. As the city slipped into the distance, so too did any illumination. The outside world grew very dark very quickly. It wasn't supposed to be like this, I heard myself whisper. My meticulously planned escape now seemed so fragile. I felt like I had stumbled headlong into a horrific new world, one that didn't abide by the rules that I described to it. Want to smoke? The vagrant said again, as if it was something he'd been programmed to say. And then it hit me. Was there something in that cigarette? I asked him. Is that why I'm so... I tried to come up with a word for the sensation I was feeling, but none fit. Disoriented, perhaps? The vagrant was smiling. Sounds like the train's working on you, he said. What do you mean? I sneered. I didn't have patience for games. But he didn't respond. He just smiled and lit another cigarette. I was about to press him for more, but in truth I didn't think he had drugged me. I didn't feel high, just out of sorts. I retreated to the rear corner of the train car where I'd situated myself previously. My eyes were fixed on the pitch-black world as it soared by. An indeterminate amount of time passed as I stared into that darkness. The outside world was a void, cleansed of all light, of all features and shapes. The blackness was impenetrable. What are you running from? The vagrant suddenly asked in his growly voice. You wouldn't understand if I told you, I muttered. Jail then, he asked. The cops. I almost laughed. Jail would be a relief compared to the things they'll do to me if they find me. But they would never let me end up in jail. I'd be too much of a liability. I couldn't rightly comprehend why I was telling him this. But there wasn't much about my situation that I could comprehend. How I had even ended up back on that train still seemed to me like a physical impossibility. I had run clean across the rail yard, had climbed into a train that wasn't even going in the exact same direction, and yet it was the same train I had been on moments before. Was my escape getting to me? 
Had something broken in my brain after all these years of wet work? My eyes had returned to the unbearable darkness of the outside world. I clicked on my flashlight and shined it at my wristwatch. Then I remembered that the face of my watch had shattered against the metal siding of the train. But even without a working wristwatch, I knew that something was wrong. Hours had passed since I'd left Detroit. It should have been nearing dawn. When does the sun rise around here? I asked. The vagrant let loose another gravelly laugh. The sun don't ever rise around here, he said. The sun will rise. The sun will rise, just not here. I sat numbly, trying to piece together what he meant, trying to force together any set of facts that would explain my present situation. I watched the cherry of his cigarette glow bright in the darkness each time he inhaled. Between his breaths, darkness would reclaim the interior of the train car. And then he would take another hit, and the blazing tip of auburn would return. The pulsing glow... The cadence of his smoking, they seemed to be the only things rooting me in that reality. It was more to me than the simple act of watching a homeless man smoke a cigarette. It was a cyclical acknowledgement that even though I had found myself in an impossible nightmare universe, I at least wasn't there alone. He exhaled. The train got dark. He inhaled, and there was light over and over as he smoked. But then, then he exhaled and the light did not return. I waited a few seconds, still expecting to see the burning tip of his cigarette pierce through the darkness. But nothing came. You still there? I called. It was an absurd question to ask. We were on a moving train, after all. Where could he have gone? but he didn't answer. I pointed my flashlight at him and clicked the button, but it didn't produce any light. I smacked the flashlight against my palm. Still nothing. I took the batteries out, put them back. I clicked the button about a hundred times. The flashlight was dead. I stood, pulling out my lighter and flicking it on. I began walking towards the front of the train car the light of my lighter slowly illuminating its rickety interior. By the time I was halfway across the train car, I could see clear to the front. The pile of tarps and blankets remained, but the vagrant was gone. I slowly turned, inspecting the four corners of the train car as my lighter cast a flickering glow across the interior. I was alone. I thought back on the sequence of events that had led me there, about how it all went wrong, about how our objective was compromised, about how it was too late to go back and change anything. The great unraveling had begun. Soon the news would come out, and lots of people would be looking for me. Perhaps they already were. I walked over to the train car's open door and looked out. The outside world was a deeper black than any night sky I had ever seen in my life. It was utterly featureless. I couldn't tell if the train was traveling through an open field or a tunnel. It was that dark. And yet, the train droned along at a consistent speed, 
I extended my arm out through the opening into the blackness outside. I watched as the tips of my fingers began to fade into darkness, as if it wasn't just a lack of light that had created this obscurity, but the presence of a dense black cloud, something the outside world had disappeared into. I crouched and pulled one of the sandbags to the opening. Then I got to my knees and pushed it through the door. I peered out to see if I could detect it hitting the ground, trying to get a sense of what kind of terrain we were traveling through. But the sandbag was just enveloped by murky darkness. It sailed into the pure black oblivion without a disturbance, without a sound. I didn't understand. I was certain that I should have heard or seen some indication of the sandbag hitting the ground next to the tracks, but there was nothing. It just slipped out of view. The sensation it gave me was that of being on top of an incredibly tall and narrow bridge, as if the train was traveling over a massive gorge, and the sandbag I had just pushed out the door was still plummeting through that impeccable black nothing. Never had I seen a darkness more absolute than the darkness outside that train car. I was reminded of the vagrant's words, The sun don't ever rise around here. I pushed the door shut and returned to my spot in the rear of the train car. Was it possible that I was just sleep-deprived? Agitated about everything going wrong? About having to run? About the considerable amount of guilt I felt about the whole thing? My eyes were tired. It wasn't far-fetched to think that they'd be unable to make out any features in the darkness. And what if I had simply lost track of time? My watch was broken, after all. Maybe I was wrong in thinking the sun should be rising, that something should be breaking through that impenetrable black sky outside. I would sleep, I decided. And when I woke, I would find that the sun had risen, that I was somewhere in Montana or Wyoming, and that I was one step closer to my clean escape. And when I arrived in Montenegro, it would all be worth it. I would be free to begin again. A man reborn. My eyes opened. Or were they still closed? It was difficult for me to tell at first. The world was still black. But something was different. Something had changed. It was the train. It had stopped moving. I got slowly to my feet, pulled out my lighter and flicked it on. Everything was perfectly still. I slid the train car's side door open. The outside world was still an imperceptible shade of black. Holding the lighter out the open door, I could make out only the faintest of details as to what was out there. It looked like the ground was gravel near the tracks, and turned to dry, sandy dirt as it went off into the distance. There were a few dead shrubs, their thin stalks bone-white even in the dark. But beyond that, I couldn't see much else. I supposed I was somewhere in the Great Basin, but I didn't know where. And I couldn't make sense of why the sun still hadn't risen. I decided to climb up on top of the train car, to see if I could get a better view of my surroundings. 
Perhaps from up there I would be able to see a light of some kind. I dug my fingers and the toes of my boots into the slatted sides of the train car and pulled myself up. When I got to the top, I sparked my lighter and looked around. As I neared the front of the train car, the glow of my lighter revealed that the car was no longer attached to the train. I could see just the empty tracks leading away, where the preceding cars should have been. I cradled my lighter as to keep it from going out and walked nimbly across the train car's roof to the back. There, to my mounting horror, I found that the proceeding cars were gone as well. I couldn't see very far down the tracks, but I could see enough to know that my car wasn't attached to anything. I had been abandoned. I think I realized in that moment that I would probably die if I stayed there. So I moved quickly. I gathered my things from inside the train car, and then I stood at the doorway, the crossing between one place and another. I looked down at the ground through the light of my lighter. The patch of earth below me looked incredibly foreign. Slowly, I lowered myself down from the train car and began to walk. I could see no signs of civilization, but I figured I would arrive somewhere eventually if I followed the tracks. I didn't keep the lighter lit the whole time I walked. There was only so much fuel. To keep my direction, I walked between the train tracks. Every once in a while, I would skim one of the rails with the outside of my foot, just to maintain my proximity to it. My eyes were of little use in the black, empty landscape. Even after my eyes had adjusted to the dark, I couldn't see much more than the rough shape of the tracks and the occasional dead shrubs alongside them. Each of the shrubs shared the same characteristic of being bleach white. They had the look and texture of chalk or moon rock. After walking for about a mile, I stopped and took the water from my rucksack. I drank and looked out into the darkness at the skeletal brush. The air was cool and dry. As I lowered my head from taking a sip, my eyes were drawn to one of the dead white shrubs at the edge of the darkness. For a second, as I watched, its branches seemed to be moving. They slowly drifted and glided, like the tentacles of a sea anemone shifting in the currents of the ocean. I blinked and the movement ceased. Had it been moving at all? I began to wonder how much of what I was seeing was real and I felt a spike of anxiety push itself through me. I kept my head down and continued walking. Every hundred or so yards, I would flick on my lighter and examine my surroundings. Eventually, I could make out something in the distance that seemed to be glowing. It shined dimly, casting a faint illumination down on the tracks. As I got closer, I saw that it was a streetlight, hung above an intersection where a narrow highway crossed the railroad tracks. Like the railroad, the highway evaporated into darkness as it receded away from the light. Beyond the immediate area of the railroad crossing, everything was still black and featureless. I was so fixed on the darkness that surrounded the streetlight that it took me a moment to realize that someone was standing at the base of it. It was the vagrant from the train. He stood... Stout yet proud-looking, bracing himself with a long staff. 
I couldn't recall seeing the staff in the train car, but I guessed that he must have had it with him. It was old and wooden. One end was blunted and flat, giving it the appearance of an oar. I could feel my mind breaking down, like there were parts of myself that weren't there anymore. I didn't know if it was just because I was running scared through the night, or if I was really losing myself. But I felt like there were whole parts of my memory, my identity, that had disappeared from view. I remember you, the vagrant said. I didn't know what to say. The parameters of my reality had become impossible to comprehend. Am I in hell? I asked. Is this my punishment? There ain't no hell. You paved the road yourself. You're the only one that knows where it goes. I turned and looked at the highway, at the gaping mouth of darkness that enveloped it. Is there a town this way? I asked. There's always a town. Always some place to get lost in. If you go down that way, you'll find what you're looking for. I flicked on my lighter and stepped onto the asphalt. I walked along the road as it faded into darkness. Soon, the light of the railroad crossing had disappeared behind me. My lighter supplied the only source of illumination. And as the world around me grew darker and darker... So too did the landscape inside my mind. I could retain so little of what made me who I was. The experiences and memories that comprised me faded in and out. What I had done and why I was there became obfuscated, like the details of a dream that become hidden from you just after experiencing them. It felt like it had been twenty or more hours since the sun had gone down but it was showing no signs of getting lighter. Instead, the darkness seemed to be ever encroaching, moving in against the glow cast by my lighter. When I had first set off from the railroad crossing, the illumination from my lighter reached from one side of the street to the other. But as I continued walking, the sphere of light began to shrink. The darkness was closing in. Or... Perhaps the darkness that had long been building inside of me was finally spilling out into the world. The glow of my lighter now hardly reached the pavement beneath my feet. I had to strain to see the place where my boots connected with the ground. The contours of my arms and chest faded deeper into darkness with each step that I took. Soon, the only thing I could see was the lighter, flickering in the darkness. My arms, my legs, the details of my surroundings, all of it had been swallowed. I held my hand a few inches from my face, but couldn't see any details. Even with my hand held in front of the lighter, the silhouette of my fingers couldn't be seen. It was as if my hand wasn't merely obscured by the darkness, but gone altogether. Like it had gone off and joined the other parts of myself that had begun to disappear as well. Eventually, the flame of my lighter was only a faint spark in a giant sea of blackness. And then, even the flame was gone. I could see nothing. Could feel nothing. I stumbled forward, unable to tell if there was still a road beneath my feet. I just wanted to die a free man, I thought. 
Hey, thanks for listening to my podcast. If you enjoy it, I'd like to remind you that I have a full-length cosmic horror audiobook available on my Patreon. It's called Solace, and it tells the story of a journalist who becomes obsessed with a series of strange disappearances. It's over eight hours long, and it's broken up into five parts. It has a private RSS feed, so you can listen to it on the Apple Podcast app or whatever other podcasting app you like. Or, of course, you can listen to it on the Patreon mobile app or desktop or whatever. And you can get it for just three bucks. Even if you just subscribe for a month, listen to it, and then go back to being a free listener, that's totally cool with me. And you get a $3 audiobook out of it, which is a pretty good deal. You can listen to the first 30 minutes of it in the episode titled Solace. There's a link in the show notes, as well as in the bio of my show, but if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. As always, thank you for listening. And please be careful of that gaunt figure that's looming in the corner of your basement. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.